Please join me by turning in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're going to look this morning at a dark passage, a passage that can be difficult, but it is a passage that the Lord has given to us for our benefit. This morning our text is John 13 verses 18 to 30, in which John recounts Jesus's pointing out of Judas's betrayal of him. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. We pray, O Lord, that as we study your word, that we would know more about our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would see him more clearly that we would see His love for us and that we would glorify Him with all of our being. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning is a difficult passage before us. It's not a passage that we would rush to look at. 
If I were preaching a topical series through the Gospel of John, this would not be one of the texts to choose. But this is, once again, another example of the benefits of preaching consecutively through books of the Bible. Because we don't avoid this text. God has given to us this text in His Word. It's inspired for us for our good. We need this passage. We need what it tells us about ourselves. We need what it tells us about our enemy. And most of all, we need what it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so earlier this morning as I was coming to church, preparing for our first service, God in His providence had even provided the appropriate weather for this text. A mist and a fog filling the entire area. Now in the fog of the night before Jesus' death, the Lord shows us three things about Jesus. First, we see the compassion of Jesus. We see that Jesus is compassionate and it's highlighted against the betrayal of Judas. Second, we see the wisdom of Jesus. We should know this, that every time Jesus speaks to his disciples or to us, his wisdom is on display. But in this passage particularly, we see his wisdom. And then finally, we see the sovereignty of Jesus. In a situation in which we might think that everything is spinning out of control and that everything is acting upon Jesus, we see that he truly is sovereign. The compassion of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, and the sovereignty of Jesus. Let's begin then by looking at the compassion of Jesus. As this scene opens up, Jesus has served his disciples. He has told them that they are clean, but not all of them. And then in the beginning of verse 18 of our passage, he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And we who come to this passage, knowing the end of the story, understand that Jesus is speaking about Judas. And so we have to ask ourselves first the question, who was Judas? Now, our great temptation is to view Judas with the end of the story in mind. We know that Judas is the great betrayer. We know that he is the great sinner. We can't think of any redeeming characteristics in Judas. No one says as they're discussing the disciples, well, I understand that Judas betrayed Jesus, but he did have this quality. Or he was awfully good at that. No one mentions anything good about Judas. As a matter of fact, if you are a student of literature, you may know that Dante, that great Italian author, authored The Inferno, which is a description of hell. And Dante describes historically hell as a great descending series of circles. And he brings into play all of the great sinners throughout history. They're found in various depths of hell. And the lower you get, the more grievous the sinner is. And right at the bottom of hell, right next to Satan, as a matter of fact, in Satan's mouth, is Judas. 
He's the worst of the worst. That's our tendency to think of Judas. But what does the Bible tell us about Judas? Surprisingly, very little. He is one of the disciples, but do you notice that we do not know how Judas was called? We know how Matthew came to follow Jesus. We know how John and Peter came to follow Jesus. We know how Andrew came to follow Jesus. But we don't know anything about how Judas joined the disciples. And for the most part, at this point in the Gospels, Judas is no different from the other 11. The only hint we have here is in the last chapter, chapter 12, verse 6, John hints about Judas's greed. You may remember the scene that Mary came and took a pound of expensive ointment and she anointed Jesus, Jesus in anticipation of his burial. And Judas is thinking to himself, well, this could have been sold and it could have been given to the poor. And John inserts an after-the-fact realization, he says in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's really the only individualized comment we have about Judas to this point. Now, I think we can surmise that Judas, along with most of Israel, expected Jesus to be a conquering Messiah, to come and to drive the Romans out and to usher in a great kingdom of Israel of which he, with the others, would sit at the forefront, that Judas wanted power and authority. And I think we can understand that because, remember, Judas stayed with Jesus for three years. When others came and went, Judas remained. But at this point, I think Judas has given up on Jesus. He's judged Jesus to be a failure. He doesn't see that there's any purpose in Jesus' calls for his own death. He doesn't understand why Jesus isn't battling the Romans. And so I think he's disillusioned at this point. He's tempted by the enemy, and he realizes that he doesn't value Jesus. Now, why is all of this important? It's because there is no clear indication up until this point that Judas would betray Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's nothing to look for. The disciples have no indication as it's happening that Judas would be the betrayer. If we look at verse 22, after Jesus has told them that one of them would betray me, they all look at one another and they're uncertain of who he was speaking about. It's not as if in verse 22, John writes, And the disciples all looked at Judas and said, I knew he was no good. No. Judas is the perfect example of a false believer. Judas accompanied Jesus for three years. He listened to Jesus' preaching. He listened to the declaration of the kingdom. And, and presumably, Judas, like the other disciples, left everything he had. Now, we don't know if Jesus had a or Judas had a family or if Judas had wealth or a business. We don't know much about him. 
But we do know that following Jesus for three years is not a full-time paying job. You can't work while you're doing that. We know Matthew left behind his tax business. We know that Peter and John left behind their nets. And so presumably whatever Judas had, he left behind. But he also had skills. He must have had skills with money because he was put in charge of the money bag so he could understand how to perhaps bargain with businessmen. He knew how to count money. He knew how to be shrewd in that way. But maybe even more importantly, the Bible tells us over and over again of Jesus sending out his disciples and of them performing miracles and casting out demons and preaching the coming of the kingdom. And in no place does it say everybody but Judas. Judas is going and doing that. Presumably, he is casting out demons. He is healing others. And when we think about that, we stop and we say, how could that possibly be? We understand Peter doing it. We understand John doing it. We even understand quiet guys like Nathaniel doing it. But Judas? But if you'll remember what Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus' response will be, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. This is important for us. Because I think often, especially in our time, especially in America, we hear stories or we see something that appears to be unusual. That someone claiming to be a preacher or a pastor or a leader or a Christian does things unusual. And we immediately assume that because they can do unusual things, they're godly. And we immediately assume that we should follow them. Putting aside whether their so-called acts are real or not, of God or of Satan, Judas shows us that it tells us nothing about the heart. I think that's very important for us as Christians. We also need to be aware that we should not be so confident in our ability to judge who is a true follower of Christ. Looks can be deceiving. It's more important to end well than to begin well. We may look at someone and say, well, by the way you're dressed and by the way you speak, you're rough around the edges and by the type of job you have, there's no way you could be a Christian. Or we look at someone else and we say, well, you're in a suit and tie and you've got a great job and and your language is perfect and you're so nice in public, you obviously have to be a Christian. God looks at the heart. We should not be so swift to make judgment. Well, what is Jesus doing here with Judas? Now that we know a bit more about Judas, why is Jesus showing compassion to him? Jesus makes a what would have been a very frightening statement to the disciples. He says... In verse 21, truly, truly, there it is again. We've seen this before. This is the 
Listen up here. I say to you, one of you will betray me. When Jesus says that, he has their full attention. This is not said under his breath. This is not an aside. He's reminding them, declaring to them, that one of them will betray him. Now remember the context of this dinner and this statement. The opposition is intense. And Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to die. And now at this meal, he tells them that they are not all clean. And then he makes reference to a horrible betrayal. In verse 18, he says, The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now that may be an obscure reference to you. But it would not have been to the disciples. Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, 9. And it is in reference to one of the most well-known incidents in all of the history of Israel. It is David making a declaration to the Lord, asking for deliverance because his close fellow, his closest friend, his closest advisor had betrayed him. This, of course, is the story of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a genius of a counselor. He was a close friend to David. He helped David in ruling the kingdom. And in the time in which David's son Absalom rebelled against him and sought to take the kingdom away from him and kill him, Ahithophel switched sides. He left David and went to advise Absalom. You might say Ahithophel took stock of the situation and he played the odds. He thought the younger, stronger, bolder man would win. And he attached himself to that cause. And David was struck. He didn't understand how this could have happened. How could not only some betray him, but his closest friend. And and that's what Jesus is referencing here. He's telling the disciples, not only is he going to be betrayed, but it's going to be one of them. It's not an outsider. It's not a hanger-on. It's not somebody who was just at the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of them. The inner circle. There are few things in life more bitter than being betrayed by a close friend. Perhaps you've experienced that. But even if you haven't, History and literature are filled with examples of this. We have the assassination of Julius Caesar. And when Shakespeare recounts it, he doesn't emphasize how many stabbing strokes were used against him. He doesn't doesn't estimate how wide the conspiracy was against Caesar. In this poignant moment, he has Caesar look to his closest friend Brutus and say... Even you, Brutus? Perhaps you remember another of Shakespeare's plays. Othello, when Iago pretends to be the close friend and advisor of Othello, and he betrays him. Or maybe you're a fan of the Count of Monte Cristo. And you may remember that Fernando betrays his friend, who is then imprisoned horribly for decades. Or maybe if you are a culture modern culture kind of person. You remember Michael Corleone walking up to his brother, Fredo, and saying, I know it was you. 
And that strikes us, doesn't it? Because it's not right. Those who are close to us are not supposed to betray us. And Jesus knows that this will be devastating for the disciples. But it's not a surprise to Jesus. He's known all along that Judas would betray him. But that does not mean Jesus is unaffected by this. He is God. But he's also man. And so John reminds us in verse 21 that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. You remember this word. It's a very vivid word. It's the same way that Jesus is described at the tomb of Lazarus. He is in pain. He is in consternation. He's deeply wounded by what Judas is doing. We have to remember that Jesus is not unlike us in his humanity. He is not passive. He's not unmoved. He is God, but he is also man. You have a Savior who feels and loves. That's important for us to remember. But even now, Jesus reaches out to Judas. You remember the scene from the foot washing, that at this type of meal, the food is placed in the center, and the guests are in a semicircle around it with their heads toward the food and their feet away from the food. They're reclining on couches or mats or benches. And we know from the description that John gives us here that John and Judas are next to Jesus. Now what would happen in a meal like this is the host would be in the center And there were two places of honor, the place to his right and the place to his left. And the place to his left was the highest seat of honor. Now, later on in this account, we see John lean back against Jesus' breast, which tells us that John is seated on Jesus' right. And he leans to Jesus to speak to him. But then we also see Jesus' hand the bread, directly to Judas. Which means Judas has to be sitting directly to Jesus' left in the highest seat of honor. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I were Jesus, Judas would be as far away as possible. I would be asking, isn't there a barn where we can send Judas? Let's get him as far away as we possibly can. I wouldn't put him closest to me. I certainly wouldn't put him in the place of honor. And Jesus speaks out loud here. He says, one of you will betray me. When he does that, Judas has to know that Jesus knows. There's no sense hiding his sin and his plot anymore. And then Jesus goes even further. He gives the morsel of bread to Judas. That is another indication of high honor. You may remember the story from the book of Ruth that Boaz showed honor to Ruth by doing a similar thing at a feast. Jesus is not only telling Judas that he knows. He's telling Judas he doesn't need to continue. That there's time to repent. There's time to confess your sin. There's time to believe. There's time to be saved. 
Jesus is still the same today. He reaches out to you now. No matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how much you have lapsed in your devotion, Jesus calls you to come to Him. If you have been pretending to follow Jesus, if you are here this morning simply to keep the peace with your family, now is the time to stop pretending and to see and hear Jesus. We come then to the second thing that this scene shows us about Jesus. The wisdom of Jesus. We might ask a question, why did Jesus tell them about the betrayer? We know from the end of the story that he's not going to try to stop Judas. Again, if this were a modern film, if we were sitting in Jesus' spot, it would be, one of you is going to betray me, it's Judas, get him, stop him. But that's not what happens here. So why does Jesus reveal this? I think there's a second reason Jesus speaks out beyond his compassion for Judas. Jesus is foretelling what will happen. Look with me at verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus wants the disciples to know in advance. Why? Perhaps the most obvious reason is that after his death, he will not be able to immediately tell them. He wants them to know in advance, I think first, so that they know who he is. Again, look at what Jesus says here in verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. The fact that He knew exactly what would happen is further proof that Jesus is God. So the next time someone comes up to you and says, well, Jesus didn't ever claim to be God. He was just a good teacher. Say to them, what about John 13, 19? Jesus says specifically that he knows the future and he's telling them the future so that they will know who he is. Seems pretty clear to me. Do you find it interesting as we go through texts that over and over we find the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in so many places we didn't even know it was? This is another one of those. And he does something else here that is hidden, I think, in the English. He says, You may believe that I am he. And I'm going to highlight this for you by actually giving you a little bit of Greek. And I can do this because it's a Greek phrase you've heard before. We've seen it in this gospel and we're going to see it again. When Jesus says this, he says, Ego, eimi. I am that I am. You'll notice Jesus has several places in this gospel where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. And it is a declaration reminiscent of Exodus 3 that He is God. I am that I am. I am self-existent. That's what Jesus is telling us here. He's telling us in advance so that we know that He is God. And there's no bones about it. 
Jesus not only foretells events, his life is foretold. Other prophets don't have their lives foretold, but Jesus does. That's the whole point of him saying the scripture will be fulfilled. But there's another thing that Jesus wants in his telling of the disciples. He wants them to be strengthened in this hard time. Jesus knows that when he goes to the cross, the disciples are going to be devastated. Even more, they're going to be devastated when they see that one of their own has betrayed him. The disciples might understand if the Sadducees and the Pharisees swooped in and took Jesus away and led him to a trial and executed him. They're not going to understand when the man they've spent three years with, ministering with, comes up and kisses Jesus and betrays him. They're going to be tempted to despair. They're going to say, all is lost. Everyone's against us. Everyone's against Jesus, even one of us. And so Jesus is preparing them for this. One commentator puts it very well. He says, Jesus knew how much Judas's duplicity would shake the faith of the other 11 disciples. Perhaps they might think that Judas had outwitted Jesus. They needed to be assured that this was the outworking of God's plan and that Jesus was fully aware of what was about to transpire. That is why he tells them before it comes. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared. This is your Savior. He's about to be betrayed and face the wrath of God. And yet his mind is on his disciples. Do you see his love and care? That's the way he cares for you. In the midst of your hard times, don't fall for the lie of the enemy that Jesus has abandoned you. Jesus never leaves his own. He never stops caring for them. Well, how do the disciples respond? Their response is an indication of just how much we need Jesus. John tells us that they looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They couldn't imagine what Jesus is talking about. And this word, uncertain, is a very interesting word. It doesn't just mean they don't have the answer. It means that this is the furthest thing from their mind. They're perplexed. They're confused. They are at a loss. They don't even know what's going on here. You've had that experience, haven't you? There are occasions where my wife will come and have a conversation with me. She either has been talking to someone or emailing with someone or watching something, and she'll start describing things to me, talking to me, and I will look at her with a blank look and say, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Now, I will confess that oftentimes that's probably because I should have been listening closely. But in either event, I don't even know where to start. It's like back the truck up and start all over again because I am lost. That's where the disciples are. They don't have any idea what's going on here. 
They're uncertain. They don't know what to do. Sometimes we are tempted to act as if we can handle things without Jesus. We might not say that because that's not a very Christian thing to say. But we act like it. We know what the church needs. We know how to handle circumstances. This scene is a reminder that we are dependent on Jesus. We need to be conscious in our relying on Jesus. Now the other Gospels show just how confused the disciples are in both Matthew and Mark. They look at each other and they look at Jesus and they say, Is it I? Am I the one? Now, can you imagine that? Being so unaware of what's going on that you are not sure if you're the one who's the betrayer. Am I going to go out and accidentally betray you? Is something going to happen to me that it's going to be me? Lord, tell me. But at the same time, they're sorrowful. They don't know what to do. But Judas shows just where his heart is. In Matthew 26, verse 25, the prime hypocrite, the great actor, and I imagine it's with soulful eyes, looks at Jesus and says, Is it I, Rabbi? Couldn't possibly be me, could it? He plays the game along with them. Well, not surprisingly, Peter takes the lead and to try and figure out what's going on here. And John tells us that he motioned to John, that is, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, you need to understand, just very briefly, this is not John being proud of himself. He's not, my username is beloved disciple. I'm with Jesus, hashtag disciple who he loves. No. This is John not wanting to give his name. He wants to, not be prideful. And actually, when he says the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's not referring to how great he is. He's saying, the only thing you should know about me is that Jesus loves me. I don't know why, but he loves me. That's how I want to be known, as one loved by Jesus. I don't know about you, but I would love to have that name as well, to be my name. Well, Peter, John says, Motion to him. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if they had um, signals that they could give. If Peter's going. I mean, I don't know. But we know that Peter, being Peter, was being very obvious about whatever it is. Peter was not giving those. Yeah, yeah, you've done that with your spouse. Is it time to leave? And you go, on your watch? No. Peter would be like. All right, let's get up and let's go. Come on. Right? He holds nothing back. And John leans back to Jesus and he says, Lord, who is it? Now, apparently this is a quiet discussion. People have some idea what's going on, as I've said, because of Peter. John may have asked it out loud because it's in the room. Jesus has already said it. But I think as we look at verse 28... Jesus is speaking probably to John in a whisper. It's the one whom I will give this morsel of bread. Now, why do I say that? Because Jesus then proceeds to dip the morsel and give it to Judas. And just moments later, Judas gets up and walks out 
and the disciples say, well, he must have sent him on an errand. Now, either they are the densest folks you have ever met in your life, or they have not heard what Jesus has said. I think it's the latter. They don't know what's going on here. Now, sadly, after Jesus shares that with John, it leads to the disciples responding in the flesh. We know from the other accounts that they begin then not just to say, is it I, Lord, but they begin to question each other. You can imagine. Oh, I always had my eye on Andrew. You know, he was critical. Andrew, no, it's got to be Matthew. You remember, he's the tax collector. He's the Roman lover. Oh, no, no, no. It's got to be Peter. Don't you remember how Jesus rebuked Peter? They go back and forth. And then they go to an even further extent. The gospel accounts tell us that they begin to have a dispute about who is the greatest. Now, now I think we can understand why they're having that dispute. Because to be the greatest is, in some sense, to be the most loyal. It couldn't be me. Look at how much Jesus needs me. Look at how in with Jesus I am. Look at how much I love Jesus. And so they're going back and forth and back and forth. They're trying to escape what's going on. But let me tell you this. You have betrayed Jesus. Your sin put him on the cross. And yet Jesus reaches out to you. He's not looking for your merit or your value. He doesn't want you to tell him how great you are. He wants you to see how much he loves you. And the lengths he will go to to save you. There's no need to pretend. There's no need to boast. You come empty-handed to Jesus. You need nothing but the Savior. That brings us then to the third thing that we see from our text. The sovereignty of Jesus. And I wonder as I look at this text, what the enemy thought. And just so you know in my notes, that's capital E, enemy. That's Satan. Judas clearly had rejected this last offer of mercy from Jesus. Now imagine that. Jesus speaks out loud exactly what you're planning. And you have seen him. And you know that he knows men's minds and hearts. And yet you think that you can still hide this from him. It's ridiculous. Judas takes the morsel and acts as if nothing is happening. Is it I, Rabbi? He plays the part perfectly. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again, and this is an illustration. Sin makes you stupid. Judas actually thinks in all of this that he can hide from Jesus. Now, if you see the foolishness of this, then remember that when you think you can hide your sin from Jesus. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts, your words, your actions. There is no deceiving Jesus. So why even try? Why fool yourself? Go to him with your sins and find forgiveness. The way of forgiveness and peace is confession and repentance. 
And we can only imagine what Satan thought was happening. Although John gives us some insight here. Satan continues his work of trying to destroy Jesus. And he has found a willing partner in Judas. And Satan works as he always does. You will recall that earlier in this chapter, in verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. John told us that. Now the next step is in verse 27, where Satan enters into him. This is not Satan overpowering Judas to do his will. Judas was a willing participant. J.C. Rao puts it so well. He says of Satan, first he suggests, then he commands. First he knocks at the door and asks permission to come in. Then, once admitted, he takes complete possession and rules the whole inward man like a tyrant. Satan is also the same today. He roams about seeking people to devour. He spies out our ways and he looks for opportunities. Do not be ignorant of his plans. Your safety is in resisting him at the first. Not giving in at any point. You can't play with Satan. You will get burned. And God has told you that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. James 4, verse 7. Look, learn, and act. Finally, notice how the account ends. We might expect Judas to find an opportunity to slip away unnoticed. Maybe during the dispute the disciples are having about who's the greatest. Or maybe when Jesus' back is turned. That would suggest that Judas is in control. And that Jesus is the victim. But Jesus has been telling us throughout the gospel that he would go and die. That no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down. This entire passage is about how Jesus knows exactly what is going on. In fact, that it is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus is the one in complete control. Look at verse 27. What you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus not only knows, he orders. He gives a command. Can you imagine the self-deception of Judas at this point? The hardness of heart. How could he possibly think this is still his plan? But that's often how we view our lives. We think we are the ones in control and Jesus has to respond to us. This passage corrects that kind of thinking. Far better to know that Jesus is sovereign over all things, even the things that we think are the most private. When you realize that you can never be out of the sight of Jesus, it directs your heart toward him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139 of the Lord, which means he writes of Jesus. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's where we stand before the God-man. This is a hard passage. It's a passage we often wish weren't in our Bible. But the mercy and wonder of it all is that it is. It's here for your sake and mine. It shows us what Jesus endured for the sake of sinners. He was betrayed and suffered and died to save the souls of those who were unworthy. It also reminds us of how dangerous sin is. The dabbling in sin leads to being consumed by sin. And it reminds us that Jesus is in complete control. He can never be caught unaware, never surprised. The enemy can never defeat him. Our Savior is our God. And for that, we give thanks. Let's pray.